Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm coming to you from somewhere outside of New York City, in New York City at this time of the week. Of course, we have with us from NYU Law School and Just Security, Ryan Goodman. How are you today, Ryan? I'm well, David, thanks. That's great. And in the nation's capital, of course, we always have at this time of the week, Dr. Kavita Patel of the Brookings Institution, a practicing physician, formerly of the Obama White House. How are you doing today, Kavita? Uh, Me and the cicadas are bringing you a lovely hello today. Not seen a cicada yet. I do not (laughs) believe cicadas are a real thing. Um, and for the first time, we are joined by Washington Post columnist James Homan. Uh, welcome, James. Good to be with you. Very glad you could join us. The reason we've asked you to join us is because we keep referring to your columns here on this podcast. Uh, you have been doing such a great job. Um, and uh, the kind of things we talk about at this time of the week tend to be the kind of things you write about. Uh, So this shouldn't be very difficult for you, although we'll have to think of thought-provoking questions that you perhaps have not addressed yet. Uh, In any event, are you in Washington too? I am. I'm in Georgetown. And are there cicadas in Georgetown? There are not as many as there are other places. For whatever reason, I've seen very few. Kavita's in a a part of town where I think that the cicadas like to hang out. they do. It's true. (laughs) Um, true. Yeah, well, um, we don't have them in New York. Anyway, um, so... Uh, the the general uh, thing that I take away from your columns, James, when I'm reading them, particularly recently, is is that one way or another, there they talk about a kind of uh, breakdown in the political character of the United States, um, and of course, every day there is some other further evidence of the breakdown of this character, whether it's the refusal to have a January sixth commission or it's um, the you know pr- proliferation of voter suppression laws, or it's you know any of a host of things that are happening in Florida or Texas. Um, today we had the FBI um, uh, 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 director t- talking about uh, that he was unaware of you know any any investigation looking into the causes of January sixth. Um, which you would think, given it was an insurrection against the government of the United States, would be a top priority. What was your your reaction to that, James? It was really disappointing, David, because I couldn't agree with you more that that is the through line and not intentionally, but in so much of what I write, because it really is the story of our time. Uh, And and Donald Trump obviously shattered a lot of these institutions or, or exposed the depths of of the problems within them. The Senate report, uh, which was a a bipartisan work product of the Homeland Security and Rules Committees, notes that the FBI, DHS, Secret Service, 
didn't fully comply with their requests, didn't turn over documents. In fact, the House Sergeant at Arms didn't either. Uh, and, and so there's there's so much more that we still don't know. What the FBI would tell you and what the director said today was that there are all these ongoing criminal prosecutions. But that that's that those are important. Uh, it is important that everyone who was involved in the insurrection be held to account. But that's not dealing with the deeper issue that you just identified, uh, which is the 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 underlying causes that led to this. And I am worried. There's seven congressional committees looking into what happened on January 6th. It seems like Nancy Pelosi is going to appoint some kind of special committee. Uh, but that, that ultimately, there's a lot we don't know uh, that that I fear we're never going to get to the bottom of. I'm going to I was going to go to a question from Kavita and a question from uh, Ryan, uh, but I but I can't contain myself. I'd like to ask a question of Ryan first in following up on what James just said. Um, this is a podcast, so I, you know, if you're not prepared for this, I, I'm allowed to say, what the fuck? And, 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 and Ryan, I, I, I wanna say what the fuck to you. Like, what is going on in the Department of Justice? Would you explain to me why time after time after time when they are presented with, you know, when the, when the ball is in their court, as it is, you know, with the FBI within the Department of Justice, as it is within some of these prosecutions, as it is within, you know, the cases that that got a lot of uh, coverage this week, you know, including the Jean Carroll case, they they do, you know, the the Trump thing, what. What is this, and 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 why did you make Merrick Garland the Attorney General? <laughs> I say, what the fuck, back to you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think what we're witnessing is something that I think could be anticipated, which is that the Justice Department is very pro-executive power, and they're going to bend over backwards to preserve the office of the presidency with all the kinds of professional and legal biases that come with that. So in some sense, it's like ordinary times. Um, just, you know, this, this past um, week, we just got the transcript of the Don McGahn interview. The idea that Don McGahn had absolute immunity as a former White House counsel and therefore could not be called to testify before Congress has its roots, for example, in an OLC opinion under the Obama administration, as but one example. Um, I think we're seeing something that should be a wake-up call for many people, the degree to which the Biden administration did not provide information to the joint Senate committees. That's kind of standard in the sense that they're going to try to preserve their prerogative and that we need to see uh, if it's gonna be a House Select Committee aggressively using the subpoena power. So that's the other thing. Yes, they didn't get the information, but they also didn't, those two, uh, so those two committees on the Senate side didn't um, wield or threaten their subpoena power. And then the Westfall Act, which comes up with the E.J. Eugene Carroll uh, litigation, they're trying to preserve executive power so that anything that Biden ever says from the podium, he can't be sued. And that the Justice Department will substitute themselves in for Biden. So there, it's all through the prism, I think, of um, in favor of the executive branch. And I think uh, that's, that's part of why I, an independent commission would have been much better 
we're investigating January 6th because I think that make greater inroads against this kind of institutional uh, territoriality. Okay, before I go to the questions from Kavita and Ryan, and I swear that's the next step on the agenda, just out of fairness to our guest here, um, James, I would like to direct the question to you in response to Ryan's response, which is what the fuck? Well, you know, it, as Ryan was saying, there are equities. I see what Mayor Garland is trying to do. Uh, you know, in, and you don't want, you know, you look back at the Clinton administration. Was it a mistake that he got? So, you know, was the, was that Supreme Court decision in, in Paula Jones, you know, did that undermine the presidency? Uh, you know, in, in Trump showed how all of these things can be used to the worst. Uh, and, and it, you know, that, but it is ultimately kind of what there's, 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 it can be a little complicated, but I do think this is an instance of the justice department sort of overreacting, overly trying to protect executive power. Uh, and, and we saw this during the Obama administration too. Ryan mentioned that OLC opinion uh, that protected Don McGahn and, and it took years of litigation basically for him to just tell the House Judiciary Committee this week what he told Bob Mueller's team four years ago. Uh, so clearly there are deep systemic problems and there are a lot of reforms that are needed that Trump highlighted uh, to fix our institutions. And unfortunately we're not, you know, we, we're not going to see them pass Congress. A lot of this stuff needs to happen legislatively. You know, to your question of what what the fuck, uh, we we what we haven't talked about is uh, going after uh, reporter phone records and email logs, uh, and and for me, that's very much in that vein. Uh, and the especially the gag order on the New York Times to prevent their own lawyers and executives from talking to their newsroom as the Justice Department pursued records, and then in the first few months. Uh, the Biden administration continued to pursue that. Uh, luckily, they've, they've backed off and they've said they're not going to do it again. But this is one of those situations where, you know, ideally we'd get some legislation to prevent this from happening. But obviously, that's just not going to happen in this environment. So what would be best uh, would be some kind of new regulation so that it's not just more guidelines that some future Trump, whether it's Trump himself or someone like Trump, can just ignore willy-nilly uh, when he has some vendetta or is angry about something that makes him look bad. You know, Kavita, this is to me a little bit like, you know, the captain of the Titanic devoting all his time to ensuring that he's got the best table in the Titanic dining room um, and ignoring everything else. You know, we've got some senators who wanna protect the filibuster at the expense of democracy. We've got the Justice Department wanting to protect executive prerogatives at the expense of democracy. If you lose the democracy, the executive prerogatives of filibuster are not gonna mean very much at all. I don't know whether this gets under your skin as a former Senate or White House staffer, but please comment on that and then direct a different kind of question, perhaps one that's a little bit more uh, um, dignified to James. <laughs> No, and I'll I'll be brief because I actually want to hear James's response. Uh, I think he knows that one of my favorite columns from May now, several weeks ago, was uh, kind of a response to the 
you know, the fact that the Democratic Party has still been kind of succumbing to what I think are the populism politics of, of the GOP and, or let me say it differently, the mafia techniques of the GOP and they all kind of stand in solidarity with each other. So it, it not only gets under my skin, but I'm gonna just say this, it is the same story for, I mean, I, I haven't been working on the Hill for 15 years and it is the same story. You just see McConnell when he was in the minority, he did it. Now he's in the minority again, but still does it. They all kind of hold strong. It's not even, it's a foregone conclusion that it comes down to mansion. I'm not sure why nobody talks about cinema, by the way. Somehow she just kind of fades away <laughs> into, the, into the ether, even though I think she's also uh, someone that deserves more scrutiny. But it these politics and, and kind of the inability to do anything and this you know, mental masturbation over voting rights. And this, it just, it appears as it is that it feels like a farce. And so it, add January 6th to that. You can have commission upon commission. We saw this after 9-11. We've seen it in many turns of our country. We've somehow forgotten accountability for COVID. I mean, I still think that that's also somehow unexplained that we have incredible like federal agencies that need to be held responsible, by the way. This isn't just about the incompetency of Donald Trump and his White House. So I, James, how, when you think about, you've kind of laid out Democrats almost are fated to lose the midterms by numbers unless they, what, resort to, you know, the tactics, stop, you know, kind of shore up this like base and try to really point out every roadblock and grievance and where is there any is there even any hope for the democrats to not kind of lose the house in the midterms and what would that path look like yeah kavita it's such a good point and it is so important i think that there are strategic decisions that have to be made about how do you use your majority and frankly i have been surprised the democrats haven't been mm -hmm. using the the committees that they control to be more aggressive about oversight uh not just of of trump uh, but of of agencies yeah. and a lot of terrible things that happened, you know, if you're if you're not passing bills on the floor because McConnell's bullocksing things up, and you're not going to get rid of the filibuster because Manchin represents West Virginia, there's a lot you can still be doing, and and I frankly have been surprised that we haven't seen more efforts to to use those platforms to one highlight for the American people. I think a lot that they don't really know to learn new information, to hold people accountable. That's not happening. I think the reason it's not happening is that there is a desire among the leadership that, to, to move on. They wouldn't say that, uh, but they don't think that they're going to win in 2022 based on doing oversight of Trump screw-ups in 2020 or 2019 or 2018. And so there's this desire to be forward-looking. Uh, but I think that there have been a lot of dropped balls. There was a lot that they could have done with the Congressional Review Act in the first you know, couple months uh, to undo some of the really odious Trump regulations or deregulations from the, the final six months. And they, they didn't do it. I think they might've done it if they had the votes, but they didn't. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you're right, we don't talk about cinema enough, but there's, you know, Manchin partly is happy to be the heat shield. Uh, there's a lot of senators that I think are uncomfortable with some of these votes that don't really want to cast them. People forget that Manchin was actually an original co-sponsor of S1 last year yeah. when it was just sort of a show bill that it wasn't going to pass. It's sort of like Republicans all sponsoring the total repeal of Obamacare when they knew it wasn't going to become law. Uh, but there are people, you know, like uh, uh, when you talk to Republicans, they feel really good about 
Uh, Chris Sununu, the popular Republican governor of New Hampshire, is running against Maggie Hassan. He won't announce until next year, but he's going to run against Hassan. And, uh, you know, she's someone who like voted against the minimum wage increase. And I think if a lot of the stuff, if she was the deciding vote and it wasn't Manchin, would be really uh, politically difficult for her. But we're not talking about her because Manchin is this heat shield. Uh, anyway, that's a long answer to your great question. But I think that there is the strategic place you're going to reach where, okay, S1 is not going to pass. They're not going to find 10 Republican votes to vote for the commission. Pelosi can appoint something or there could be a presidential commission. There will be Congresses, as Kavita knows better than anyone from having spent so much time there. Congress loves to spend money. You know, they'll spend money. They'll pass an infrastructure bill. They'll be able to spend money. Uh, but then once you get past that, what do you do with your majority? Because you're right, in all likelihood, they will lose it uh, next November. And then the second part of your question is, how do you keep the majority? And I do think there, um, I was, I was, I thought the numbers from Virginia were really disconcerting this yeah. week uh, for yes. Democrats, because <laughs> yes. the, you know, it's the turnout numbers in the Virginia Democratic primary. Terry McAuliffe was going to win the primary. We endorsed him on the editorial board at the Post. Um, but there was a competitive lieutenant governor's race. There was a competitive attorney general's race. And in the governor's race, there were three other African-American candidates, uh, you know, two impressive uh, African-American women who were running. And none of them could drive people to the polls. And, you know, so turnout was vastly lower than it was in 2017. Uh, and, and it is a desire. You know, I think four years ago, a lot of a lot of even moderates, Virginia doesn't have party registration, were willing to crawl over glass to vote for mm-hmm. any Democrat to repudiate Donald Trump in any way they could. And they're not feeling that way right now. Uh, and and that is going to be a problem. And so that I think Democrats might be taking their base for granted, but you also do have to figure out a way to appeal to suburban moderates who, who dislike Trump, but who aren't necessarily going to go vote for a, a Democrat in 2022. So you have to do both those things. And that's why I do think, as I mentioned, that you have to make these strategic decisions. It's not necessarily an either or. You can do oversight of Trump and go after undoing the terrible stuff Trump did to keep your own base animated and to keep Trump will obviously keep himself in the news. Uh, but then you also need to do things that will reassure those suburban voters uh that in, in, you know, maybe Hispanic working class folks who don't really follow politics closely, that they still should engage and participate in the midterm. I'll just say one thing, and we had Jennifer McClellan on Good. this podcast because she was one of those very impressive mm-hmm. kind of, even though we felt like the primary might've been, had some inevitability to it. I'll just underscore, there was this attention put in the initial, well, still on the Biden administration, they just confirmed the first ever Muslim judge. And, and so there's there's been this kind of point about diversity and this and this, but somehow it gets overshadowed by just the chaos or kind of the feeling that the Democrats don't have their base. It's You can't just point to individual people of color in cabinet positions, nonetheless, and say, and the vice president, and say, oh, that's enough for me to come out and vote. I want to see more of that, because it doesn't feel like it's offsetting, like, or it doesn't feel like it's it's working in the best interests of kind of uh, regular Americans, people who are suffering. And then it certainly is not a counter to like the Proud Boy movement and what we're seeing somehow still being a threat. Kind of, you know, Trump off social media, he still breaks through. Totally agree. Yeah, I'm going to turn to Ryan for a question, but I do want to make a comment here. And that is, 
just response to what you said and what Kavita said. On the one hand, Democrats are like, turn the page, let's not focus on January 6th and on Trump. Um, and while I do understand the logic, I don't agree with it. I, I, I think folk, it's required by democracy and, and it's also politically the right thing to do. But, but, but not making a fight about um, voter suppression, mm -hmm. not using every tool that you've got is a huge mistake, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you say, well, let's not go and, and go to the, the mattresses on that one, that's going to be one of the reasons you lose in the following election. It is salient in that regard. And, you know, I also think that the Democrats lack a sense of urgency that any examination of history would give them. Uh, and Kavita was in the Senate long enough to realize that senators get sick. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they die. They have other problems. And if you have a one vote majority, you, you may not have that for an extended period of time. And so that should give you a sense of urgency. Um, Ryan? Pat, you know, Pat, uh, Pat Leahy, you know, got sick. He had, there's a Republican governor in Vermont. And he's like, yep. by all accounts, running for re-election. Uh, and yes. you're, you're absolutely right. I think that there is, I just don't sense this. Like, I think that it, it feels when you talk to Democrats on the Hill, they'll tell you they learned the lessons of 2009 when they wasted so many months trying to get Chuck Grassley and others on board with the ACA. Uh, but then we're doing it again. We're watching the same movie play out on infrastructure and all these other things. And I think some of it's to placate Manchin, but there isn't this sense of urgency that the majority isn't guaranteed to stay in place through the end of next year. There's a lot that could happen with our, you know, kind of like geriatric Congress. True, Ryan. So I just want to return to the Senate report that came out about January 6th. Maybe a little bit of a segue here might be the also bizarre move that just happened recently with uh, Speaker Pelosi saying that she's still wanting to give the Senate an, <laughs> the option of creating an independent commission, which just seems uh, like everybody has said, like Charlie and the, and the football, uh, Charlie Brown and the football, it just doesn't make sense to go through that. Maybe it's to placate Manchin because he made the statement that give them another shot at voting for it, <laughs> which is if you have any insight into why you think that they're trying that route again with the Senate when time is of the essence to get this thing up and running. So I, I just wanted to focus in on um, your column, your most recent column, the title of which is An Insurrection Hiding in Plain Sight, and then drill down a little bit further on David's point about like, what is the reason for these kinds of institutional failures? The last two sentences of your column are, after you have explained that the Senate report finds, you know, very significant intelligence failure or dissemination of intelligence, that the U.S. Uh, Capitol Police had a bunch of specific threat information, but they didn't act on it um, in terms of uh, securing the Capitol. And then at the end, you said, last two sentences, what happened at the Capitol was not the failure of imagination. It was a failure of leadership. And I guess the question I have is, what do you think explains the failure of leadership? I think it was a, a cascade. So, and I wrote that in an intentionally... Uh, vague way. Obviously, first and foremost, it's Donald Trump. If Donald Trump hadn't spread the big lie for three months, people wouldn't have descended on the Capitol. I think it was a failure of Republican leadership who 
played games for months of, of saying, even the ones who get credit for saying that Joe Biden won the election, waited until the electoral votes had been all counted in mid-December before they acknowledged that. And, uh, and, and then obviously you had the majority of Republicans in the House who voted to throw out all of the electoral votes from you know, Arizona and Pennsylvania and Georgia. And, uh, and so all of those people failed first. And then I do think that there is something, you know, it's, it, it, it's maybe below the, the pay grade of this podcast, uh, but we clearly need new leadership of the Capitol Police Department. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the woman who's the interim chief was the person who was in charge of disseminating the intelligence. That was literally her. She was the assistant chief in charge of intelligence. And her department was getting all these things. By all accounts, she wasn't reading memos that were being sent to her or sharing them with other people. And somehow she's the one who got promoted to be acting chief. So she certainly is not the person who should still be chief. Uh, you know, but that, that, that's important because we obviously want to protect that institution physically, but that's not the, the most important thing. The most important thing is, is how do we safeguard these institutions? And it is, you know, I think Pelosi, I think to David's point, there's a, there's a desire to shame Republicans, but what we've seen over the last couple of years is that they're incapable of being shamed. And so there is the, you know, it's sort of like, okay, let's have another vote and make them filibuster this. And, and that's just not, it, it doesn't, it doesn't affect them the way that I think it would have in the past. Uh, and, and so the, the, the question is how do you protect the institution? And so I think a lot of it is trying to put in place things that can't be undone when Kevin McCarthy is most likely speaker in 2023. Uh, and, uh, and that's where, you know, I'm, 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 torn about the filibuster because I do think Republicans will control the Senate. And I think that there's a lot of things that they could do, uh, you know, and, and, and so you, you want to protect the institution from a majoritarian scenario where the insurrectionists are in charge. Kavita? Very sobering because it all feels fated to be true. Uh, a segue, but I can't help but think, James, knowing your writing kind of before uh, you became the youngest editor at the Washington, uh, contributing editor at the Washington Post, opinion editor, uh, technical title. I, I know that you've had a long kind of passion uh, studying Ronald Reagan, studying presidents, studying leaders. I just have a very simple question. What is to come of the Republican Party? You know, you look at like George P. Simple. Bush. You, I mean, where, so where, where, what is, what is to come, um, you know, you've seen some of these Republicans kind of defect to create, uh, you know, uh, David, what Olivia Troy and kind of others are, are backing, which sounds like, you know, trying to be sensible Republicans, but it doesn't seem like anyone's taking that bait. So what what is to come of the Republican Party? I'm not holding you responsible for it personally in any way. I just know that you've studied this through time mm-hmm. and I truly don't understand. I ask what's going to come of the Democratic Party, myself as a Democrat, but I don't understand what the play is here for Republicans or what the conversations are behind the scenes at the party level. Well, what the behind the scenes conversations are like, don't worry, we don't believe this stuff. We'll be, re, you know, we're, we're, we're being held hostage by Donald Trump. You don't want to provoke the bear, <laughs> uh, you know, just, but, but we're, we're doing what we can. We're afraid for our safety. We're afraid of being attacked by the press, but I, I don't give credence to that, but I hear that every day you talk to, Republicans, 
you know, I was, I was listening to a podcast that JD Vance did. Mm -hmm. Uh, he's the guy who wrote hillbilly elegy. Obviously that was sort of a, a very popular book after Trump won to try to explain his appeal in, in Appalachia. Uh, and he did this right wing interview that was just alarming as could possibly be in which he said, I have changed. I am different than I was because I'd been radicalized. And, and then twice he says, we should really try to emulate Hungary and Orban is doing some great things. And it was just kind of like, so startling to hear someone say that. And that's not something you have to say to appeal to primary voters in Ohio. That represents and reflects a fundamental, dangerous radicalization of the Republican Party. Uh, and, and he thinks that that's going to appeal to voters. He's going to announce for Rob Portman's seat next mm -hmm. month in Ohio. And he's in a primary with a bunch of other people who are all trying to outdo each other in terms of being crazy. Uh, and so the, the I certainly don't see the fever breaking anytime soon. And it is Trump's party. Uh, I think the Liz Cheney race is going to be super interesting to watch. Mm -hmm. Can she survive in Wyoming? If she does, I think that's a, a good sign that there will be these voices in the party. Uh, but, but you know, the George P. Bush, the George P. Bush uh, felt the only way to advance his political career in Texas was to throw his mom and dad and grandma and uncle and grandfather under the bus, I think says a lot about his character, but I also think it says a lot about what someone who's very much in the milieu of the GOP today uh, feels is the future of the party. So I don't mean to keep being sobering and depressing, but that's no, but you would pretty think it's pretty dang sobering and depressing. It's, it's hard to write a better. And then David, I promise I'll shut up. Like, cause I, when you ask what the fuck I'm like, if I'm a, a democratic strategist, this feels like a gift, right? These are these are people who really don't actually like Trump. They they don't agree with him. They don't like him. But you're talking about what sounds like the equivalent of like radicalized. You know, we talk about kind of radicalized of any religion and zealots. And mm -hmm. J.D. Vance has aligned himself with Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying like that child care credits are you know unconstitutional and shouldn't do it. So I it still baffles me that even still then, Democrats can't seem to kind of wedge their way in. We're just constantly like, you know, not should, understanding. I, I get baffled too, you know, and you know, yesterday was a perfect example of a day where in the course of one day, we have Louis Gohmert asking the Forest Service to change the orbit of the moon. <laughs> we have a nurse speaking on behalf of the Republican party saying that the vaccine makes people magnetic so mm -hmm. that keys would stick to their forehead. Um, and then you have a poll coming out that show the 53% of Republicans polled believe that Donald Trump is actually the president of the United States. Mm -hmm. And then you think these people are nuts. They should be easy to beat. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you, listening to this conversation and to each of you, um, there's another subtext to this that maybe, you know, it's like Democrats can't hear it or sensible people can't hear it. And that is James just said he thinks the Republicans are going to win the House. He thinks that McCarthy is going to be the speaker. He thinks that Republicans are going to win the Senate. I guarantee you that columnists the day after the 2022 election, if both of those things happen, are going to be writing articles saying, what's the future of the Democratic Party? Not what's the future of the Republican Party, because yeah. it's going to look like the Republicans cracked the code and mm -hmm. while the Democrats were getting all hung up on, on small things like truth, Ryan. So James, it would just be good to hear you talk about 
something that we actually talked about in the last podcast last week, which is that some Democrats might be complacent because they think that the Republican Party is becoming so fringe, and that's actually a good thing that Trump, that it is the party of Trump, and they rely on that belief to think they'll be easier to beat because those, that's the, those are the individuals who are going to emerge in the primaries, and then in the generals, they'll be much easier to beat. What do you what do you make of that um, kind of an analysis? Yeah, well, that's you know, the, Kavita mentioned I, I've spent many years studying Ronald Reagan very closely, and you know, the Carter folks thought Reagan would be much easier to beat in '80 than than others, and so they were happy to see him emerge from the primary. Similarly, in 2016, the Hillary Clinton team was ecstatic because they thought if Donald Trump's the nominee, there's no way we can lose. And, uh, and so I think it is one of those situations where we should learn that lesson of be careful what you wish for. And uh, there is a lot of interesting stuff happening on the, uh, uh, on, there are machinations on the Republican side. North Carolina is fascinating. That's, Trump had a rally there on Saturday night and Laura Trump, his daughter-in-law announced she's not running. And then Trump endorsed Ted Budd, uh, who's actually the more moderate is not, it's not a, you know, it's a Trumpy, not Trump. But there's a this guy, Mark Walker, who's a congressman who Mick Mulvaney actually endorsed today, uh, is, is sort of the more conservative candidate in the race. But Pat McCrory, who's the former Republican, he was the former mayor of Charlotte, more establishment moderate. So he, there, it's kind of this three person race. And Trump basically endorsed the middle candidate who could appeal to the who can win the primary. So there was some strategic thinking behind that endorsement. And, uh, and so it will be interesting to see who emerges from some of these primaries, uh, because I think that the Republicans actually, despite Trump taking over the party, did learn a lot of lessons from Christine O'Donnell in 2010. And, uh, yeah. you know, the uh, um, Todd Akin and Richard Murdoch and all these seats that they should have won and didn't. And so they kind of, they're more willing, McConnell's super PAC is willing to meddle in these primaries in a way I think Democrats, even the Biden White House, remain very nervous to to meddle in some of these Democratic primaries. Uh, Republicans, it feels like, have learned the their lesson. So I think sometimes it, I, I think you kind of I, I go back and forth on that too. It's sort of like, well, if if both candidates are crazy, do you want the crazier one to win the primary so that they lose the general? I, the, the statistics I, I keep coming back to. Democrats love to say Biden won the popular vote by 7 million votes, which he did. But it, it really, the election came down to 40,000 votes on a yep. di- you know, different, people roll out of bed a little bit differently. And it's mind blowing. 20,000 votes in Wisconsin, 10,000 votes in yep. uh, both Arizona and Georgia. And uh, you know, that's what happened in 2016. It was just kind of the other direction. And, and all of a sudden Trump's president. And to David's point, everyone is writing about how terrible the democratic party is and what how it's out of you know and and so that i think should be much more sobering than it is to a lot of of activists on the left to understand yes it's hard to beat an incumbent uh but if not for covid trump probably would have found a way to get reelected, and and then our democracy really truly would be in peril i think i'm very much of the view that america can survive one term of donald trump but not two yeah i gotta tell you i'm in the midst of doing a book, which I haven't talked much about on the podcast, but it's a book about how 
people within the Trump administration kept the train from going completely off the tracks and sort of the many ways we dodged the bullet. And it's a book about sort of, you can call it the deep state, but it's really about how dedicated civil servants who are Republicans and Democrats acted as a check when the Congress wouldn't. And if, I got to tell you, if there's one, and the book's not coming out till next year, and you know now, now I'll spoil it by telling everybody this. But if there's one theme that comes through, it's it's people who understood what was going on saying that they didn't think we could survive a second Trump term, because Trump figured out how to work the government and was conducting purges and was only going to put people in who would do exactly what he said, regardless of the law, and that if we had gone into that second term you know, we would be unrecognizable by the time we, we got out from it. There's just a couple minutes left. Kavita, quick question. Ryan, a quick question. Uh, quick prediction, James. The Boris-Biden uh, kind of uh, confab reunion, what do you make out of that? Well, I think the, they, there's a new Atlantic charter. It's kind of right. amusing that that's what they're calling it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I, I, uh, I, I'm glad Americans will be able to go to the UK again. I'm worried about you know the variant and everything, but the um, uh, it's it's it, America's back, and it is. I mean, it feels great. I picked up. I, I I've started subscribing. I now get five print newspapers every morning, and I laid out all the papers this morning. And you know, there's just exciting pictures of Biden arriving in Europe. You don't even have to like Biden, but it it's nice to have an American president who you don't cringe with embarrassment. Uh, or feel is going to humiliate us, or that foreign leaders are going to be laughing at behind his back. Uh, and you know, I'm 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 hopeful that next week Biden puts human rights front and center in his summit with Putin and Erdogan. Uh, but um, but I feel really good. There was a Pew poll today that came out that showed that America's standing in the world really has markedly improved. Uh, that that people really uh, see us in a in a much better light than they did a year ago, which makes me feel good that mm -hmm. the Trump damage. Well, serious, maybe isn't as permanent as we might have feared. See, there you are spoiling all this. See? I told you, David, yeah. and yeah. with a good note. Yeah, Vita, <laughs> you are uh, Dr. Sunshine. Um, <laughs> so I can easily turn it a little bit darker. <laughs> I guess the concern I have is that everything we've said in the first 90% uh, of this podcast would also said suggest a different message to the world, which is you might just get four years of sunshine um, here with Biden and we might very well be back into a grave threat to democracy and the US as being a reliable ally. Because that same, you know, that the Pew Research Poll, I, I know the numbers you're saying and they say exactly what you just said, but James, you know, the other one is the one I focused on this morning is around the world quote, 17% of uh, the people polled say democracy in the US is a good example for others to follow. And 57% said it is used to be a good example, but has not been in recent years. And this is my understanding is that, you know, from what other stuff that is coming out is that this is Biden's sense as well, that it's really a competition of models of government, uh, democracy versus some of the authoritarian governments from China Russia and the rest, but the international community can just look at this and say, we just don't know, we can't count on you um, as an American public to vote, to not vote an autocrat back in. Um, so I just don't know how 
we think about those kinds of issues um, or what, the, what, what kind of solution there could be to that kind of a problem. Before you, I, before you respond to the question, just I will add that while Ryan's referring to the Pew poll, a couple months ago, there was the Freedom House poll and the Freedom House poll showed that more people around the world thought the United States was a threat to democracy than thought Russia or China were a threat to democracy which is the, the wrong side of that for us to be on. Anyway, go ahead, James. Chilling. It's chilling. And, and I really appreciate how Biden has teed up the defining choices. You know, we have to prove that democracy works. And, and we have to prove that democracy works. He's, he's right about that. And we have to show that our system works. And that's why all the underlying reforms that we were talking about in the top half of this conversation are, are vital because autocracy is on the march. Democracy is in recession we have to, you know, we, we do face this very real challenge from a rising China and, uh, and our, to really project soft power, we have to show that democracy isn't just going to be in vogue when a Democrat is president, but that our country is going to be a beacon of freedom and, and all of that. And so, the, the, you know, the jury is still out. I'm hopeful, uh, and I think it is really valuable that it does actually seem like President Biden recognizes this as this defining challenge, because if, if we frame it that way, I think it does help us. It at least increases the likelihood that we can achieve it, or at least you know win the generation, win the future. I think we all strongly agree with that. I think it's great that you joined us. I hope you will come back again soon. Um, uh, despite the fact that Kavita said you were the youngest person to hold this job, we will not hold that against you. Um, uh, I, I, I really, really admire the columns that you're doing, really admire it. And uh, it shows in, in your commentary here. So hopefully you'll come back. Uh, Ryan and Kavita, of course, we'll see you again next week. Uh, everybody who's listening, you wanna hear what else we've got coming and we've got some really interesting um, podcasts coming up uh, in the next few weeks. Go to the dsrnetwork.com. You'll find out about them. You can also click on um, membership. And if you choose to support us with a little bit of uh, donation, um, uh, you know, you'll get a mug or a mask or something out of it, and it'll help us do what we're doing. So the dsrnetwork.com. Thank you, James. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, everybody. And uh, stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye.